with all the other types of intelligence, whether again, it's geospatial or imagery or signals or cyber or metadata, various types, human intelligence, and so forth, all of these brought together uh, and integrated in very impressive ways um, that revolutionize, again, the intelligence world and do it at much greater speed. So that whether it is trying to understand what the enemy is doing in real time or where specific individuals, specific bad guys might be in real time, uh, all of this has evolved very, very significantly over the course of the last two decades in particular. Welcome to the Spymasters podcast. This week's guest is General David Petraeus. General Petraeus is the former director of the CIA who also commanded the US-led coalition forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He's written a book with the award-winning historian Andrew Roberts called Conflict. It explores the evolution of warfare from 1945 to Ukraine and beyond. The Daily Telegraph called this a hugely important book, elegantly written and persuasively argued, and we couldn't agree more here at Spymasters. We're going to talk about one aspect of it, the evolution of military intelligence. We'll be talking weapons of mass destruction, Iraq, Putin, and the future role of AI and quantum in military intelligence. From quantum to Walsingham, our next guest will be the best-selling novelist S.J. Paris, talking about the Elizabethan polymath and spy Giordano Bruno. So follow us wherever you get your podcasts and don't miss an episode. I'll now hand over to me talking to the general about all things intelligence. David, thank you so much for agreeing to be on uh, the Spy Masters podcast. It's amazing to have you. Thank you, Antonia. It's great to have you here because obviously you have been uh, uh, involved in providing intelligence, but also mostly throughout your career, you've been involved in using intelligence. When you're sort of standing there in the moment trying to make decisions, how central is good intelligence to those decision making processes? Well, it's crucial. It's absolutely essential. Uh, it is beyond invaluable. Um, it's the critical element, typically, that informs decision making, um, guides you as you're going through that particular process. But it all starts with an understanding of the situation, um, of the enemy situation, of the friendly situation, for that matter, or the the physical terrain, the human terrain. Uh, the various elements of a society in which you might be fighting uh, or carrying out other operations. Again, all of the information on which you base the whole process that you go through begins with intelligence. And in fact, there's a term IPB, the intelligence preparation of the battlefield, that encompasses all of this. Um, and again, is the beginning of the process through which you go in, in making decisions uh, in the military. I'd contend that it's the same thing in the business world and it's the same thing in the intelligence world uh, as well. How do you sift the good intelligence from the bad, particularly when you're making these decisions quite often in periods of quite high stress? So, you know, how do you apply your critical faculties to whatever intelligence is coming your way? Well, again, depending on the form of the intelligence um, and how finished a product it is and so forth, often there is assistance provided to you by the analysts who assess the 
reliability of the particular source um, and and so forth, which is a critical component. Um, you know, what is the track record, especially if it's a human source? Um, and so that is very critical. It matters a great deal if the human source has a track record and it's and is always uh, solid, honest, uh, and so forth in what he or she provides. Um, and then the same is true of a variety of other forms of intelligence that you get. Um, the sense of how confident are you in the quality of the intelligence in the, in some cases, the veracity uh, of it. And you have to make certain judgments about that because, of course, there are often individuals who are trying to inject into the sources and methods that are used by those who are gathering uh, information and turning it into intelligence. Uh, There might be disinformation uh, injected. There may be deception. There may be Again, subterfuge. Um, so again, there is a there is both a uh, an analysis that is again fairly straightforward, uh, fairly uh, hard and fast, and then there's also just your the feel, the the sense um, as you evaluate a certain bit of Im- information of intelligence um, as to just in some cases, how plausible is this? How believable is it? How accurate uh, is it? And of course, that depends greatly depending on the type of intelligence uh, that you are uh, using, seeking to understand and so forth, whether it is, again, human intelligence, signals intelligence, cyber intelligence, um, any forms of open source intelligence, imagery intelligence, um, and a number of others even more arcane um, and I think over time, an intelligence consumer, which is, as you noted, was what I was for much of my time in government, mm-hmm. um, even as the director of the CIA, you're still an intelligence consumer, even though the organization you're privileged to lead is the biggest uh, collector uh, of foreign intelligence uh, in particular. But this is all part and parcel of um, how you go about this. Um, and and how you use it, uh, evaluate it, uh, cross-check it. Of course, you can do that as well, cross-queuing and so forth. And the really big development, I think, of recent decades, actually, is the ability of the intelligence community to take numerous sources of information, um, often dissimilar data sets, and to integrate it all, um, and to use a bit of this type of intelligence and that type of intelligence and this other intelligence and pull it all together uh, to produce something that can be very significant, whether it is in, if you will, the manhunting business, which obviously we were in to a considerable degree in the military, uh, especially, um, or in trying to understand uh, what a particular foreign leader is intending to do, inclined to do, planning to do, or what some kind of other information is telling us about a variety of different subjects um, in, in which we have keen interest. So traditionally, working out what's good intelligence and bad intelligence, you're saying, comes from a sort of combination of um, experience and knowledge uh, and is a kind of coming together in something which must occasionally feel like instinct but you're saying that's being slightly overridden by a kind of 
uh, more technologically driven um, uh, kind of ability to synthesize lots of different things to come up with more plausible things. But do you still need the human? I I, I hesitate to use the word instinct, but, um, you know, that kind of collection of human intelligence systems um, to kind of. uh, Yeah, 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 I, I think you do. Again, it's one thing to see Putin's army arrayed around Ukraine, um, not just on Russian soil, but also uh, in Belarus uh, in late 2021. Um, But it's another to conclude that he truly does intend to carry out uh, an invasion of his neighboring country. Um, And again, the capabilities were crystal clear. There was no refuting what we saw um, and what was actually shared with the world. Because I I think one of the really big developments before the latest Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022 was the U.S. and U.K. release of information uh, that clearly had been derived from intelligence. Essentially, finished intelligence products were laundered uh, to remove any sources and methods from them so as not to expose those, but still to provide very clear information. It's That it was a fairly revolutionary act. I can't recall something like that being shared in the past. The hope, I think, was to Russia on notice to a considerable degree, but also, frankly, to um, share with Ukrainian leaders that, hey, you've got to be ready for this and share with European leaders as well, um, so that if this actually transpired, and it was very clear that we believed that it would, that it was going to take place, um, that they would be prepared uh, in a variety of different ways. And, And the interesting fact is that there was a little bit of a degree of denial um, in Ukraine because, of course, they didn't really mobilize until uh, less than 48 hours prior to the actual invasion. Uh, There's a variety of reasons for that. It can obviously spook the population. It can uh, it could actually spark something unintended. But at the end of the day, um, again, this particular laundering of intelligence into publicly releasable information without exposing sources and methods, was really quite path-breaking. Um, but it highlights, again, that even though you can lay out capabilities, the question is often about what are the intentions. And that's a much more difficult judgment to make, especially if it's the intentions of one person um, who may or may not share those intentions clearly uh, with others or with the world uh, in a way that allows us to divine the intentions very, very clearly, as well as the capabilities. Just um, to pick up on that, though, presumably, once upon a time, uh, if the Americans and the British had that information, they would have shared it with the Ukrainian leader and the European leader. Oh, it's, it's known That's that what... they did. There's no yeah, question but, that... No, 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 but they, also... would have, but they wouldn't have made that public. They would have always shared it or you know, shared it with the the right allies, you know, information sharing between intelligence services is nothing new and, and sharing with um, other governments isn't new. So, but that particular edge of making it public that they were sharing with it, that was the thing that was new. So it wasn't, they didn't need to go public in order to share that information with Zelensky. 
No, correct. And of course, I'm sure that what was, I'm very confident that what was shared with President Zelensky uh, and his military leaders and so forth was more detailed, perhaps had some uh, reference to certain sources and methods, again, without being very careful never to expose a human source. But I'm sure that there was more of that. It was probably more detailed. It was uh, much more granular uh, and so forth. So undoubtedly, without question, that took place. Um, the revolution was that so much was shared, but done in a way that once again did not expose sources and methods. That's the art uh, that took place in this in this particular situation. And and again, to come back to what we've been talking about, there is there is a component of this that is sort of science. I mean, it's it it exists. It's these are facts that you can see it in many cases for yourself. It's hard and fast. Uh, but then there's the art, and that's the part we've been talking about, uh, which is the judgment aspect, the intuition. Mm-hmm the sense of this. Um, and at the end of the day, leaders often have to take what so many different organizations are providing to them. Sometimes it's all beautifully integrated. Sometimes it's not, especially in the, in the heat of a crisis decision-making process. Um, and, and then try to divine from that with help, obviously, uh, from analysts and so on, but to try to divine from that, Okay, what is really going on here? What is likely to happen? What should we do in response? Um, how do you, it, talking about it as an art then, how do you, as a consumer of, it, of intelligence, p- p- sort of stop your own desires and prejudices from influencing how you interpret that intelligence? I mean, we have a very good example of that in Putin. Putin's intelligence obviously gave him a distorted picture of what would happen after he invaded Ukraine um you, you know, so he seems to have fallen into a trap but you know I'd be interested if that trap well, is something did. that you're aware of and, and again we saw this publicly because he actually uh showed a meeting that was going on between him and his advisors and he actually browbeat the uh one of his intelligence chiefs because the guy was not telling him exactly what he wanted to hear um, so if you have a situation like that where the leader doesn't want to hear something contrary to what he's predisposed to hear, uh, wants to hear, then you have a real problem on your hands. Um, the other challenge is to allow, again, lessons of history, if you will, that particularly those that you experience, the most visceral of situations, uh, weigh very heavily on decision makers, especially during crisis decision making. There's a whole body of academic um, discussion on this. In fact, my PhD dissertation at Princeton was on the American military and the lessons of Vietnam. Um, and in my view, those lessons weighed too heavily in certain circumstances on certain military leaders and on certain civilian leaders. Um, and there was constantly that, you know, this is another Vietnam or it's not another Vietnam um, when in reality, these kinds of historical analogies, these kinds of lessons of history can obfuscate as well as illuminate. And what you're trying to do is determine, is there value in this particular historical analogy or case uh, that came before? Um, and you have to be very self-aware, again, of what you've experienced leading you to see a certain situation through a particular prism. 
Uh, and again, that's most uh, serious when you're in a very fast moving situation with enormous pressures uh, of time and the need to make a decision uh, with incomplete information. Do you think um, that authoritarian leaders, whether of political organizations or military ones, are more likely to be sort of trapped by their own um, by their own situation into misreading the intelligence? I suspect so, but you could have, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of, in a sense, a benign dictator who actually establishes a culture of openness um, and says, I want some naysayers around me. Um, I want people not to be afraid of telling me, you know, telling the emperor he has no clothes. Um, you know, if you think about it, a, mil- a military commander to some degree has some pretty considerable um, authorities, some very considerable responsibilities as well. And I've seen individuals who literally don't didn't want to hear it. You know, I don't want to hear that. I, I'm, I'm not mm. buying that. I'm, and, and the word goes out. Boss doesn't want to hear that. So he doesn't get told that. Um, I tried to be very, again, self-aware in this regard so that when I was uh, selected to command the surge in Iraq, I literally went and found some people who have been contrarians. Um, one of the individuals was a, a military intelligence colonel named Derek Harvey, who had early on, when I was a two-star in Iraq, in the very beginning, um, said, you know, we're starting to see signs of an insurgency here. And the word came back from the Pentagon, they literally don't want to hear that word. Um, and in fact, they then basically threw him out of the theater. They said, you know, perhaps your tour is going to come to an earlier end uh, than you thought, and it did. Um, and he was a little bit in the in the wilderness. Um, and I found him and I said, I want you going back with me. You're going to work directly for me. I want you periodically to challenge me. I don't I, I'm, I'm telling you up front, I'm not always going to accept everything you say. Uh, I'm not going to do everything you recommend, but I want to hear it. Um, and I mm-hmm. want you inside the tent instead of outside the tent, doing what people do who are excluded from the tent <laughs> to those who are yeah. inside the tent. There was another, there was a lieutenant colonel, a field artillery lieutenant colonel who was commanding an artillery battalion. Um, and whether this was completely intended or not, what did happen is that his entire battalion was deployed in pieces. We weren't shooting a lot of artillery uh, at that time. And so that many of the units, the batteries were used for, say, detainee operations or route clearance and security or even an area of responsibility, infantillery, as they used to call it. But he was not deployed. And I think in part, and this, he was a very bright guy. I knew him. I had a list of many of the PhDs in the army that if I ever got to a certain point, I would want to go find and bring over. And I did. Every Rhodes Scholar I could track down, Marshall Scholar, et cetera. And so he's sitting back where his unit was before it was deployed. And I heard about this. And I said, you know what? I wonder if this is because he wrote that article a few months back which was very critical of the senior leadership of the military. Um, I don't know, intellectually inflexible or flaccid or something. I mean, again, it was quite pejorative. Um, I'd like to think that he excluded me from that particular category, but I, I'm not totally sure. Um, so I wrote a request for deployment that could only be filled by him. <laughs> you know, I, I crafted it very carefully, got him over <coughs> and put him underneath the two-star that was overseeing detainee operations, which is where the bulk of his unit uh, had ended up in Iraq. 
Um, and I said, hey, I want to hear from you. If you ever have, you know, something, here's my direct email. I would give my email to every company commander with whom I met uh, when I was doing these unit patrols where I'd go out for myself and see. And we'd go outside the wire on a patrol with a battalion commander, company commander, and so forth uh, in a unit. Uh, and at the end of that, I would sit with just the company commanders, no one else in the tent. And I'd say, here's my email address. If there's something ever that's bothering you, that bothers me. And you haven't been able to get your own chain of command to to resolve it. I need to know about it. You're the last level that knows every soldier by face, not just by name or number. Every casualty, therefore, by face. And you have an, an awesome responsibility. It is... And you need to ensure that if you're ever dissatisfied, that you let me know. You owe that to your soldiers. This is life or death. And so, again, you've got to create, I think, a culture of openness, welcoming some degree of dissent. I mean, there's a point at which it has to end and they all need to execute the decision that the leader makes. And I made that clear as well. And you also have to create a culture of learning because... Uh, especially conflicts that go on for a period of time, the side that prevails is typically the one that learns the fastest and the best. And we wanted to be a learning organization as well, one is, as well as one that was led by somebody who was willing to consider, uh, again, reasoned, principled, um, professional uh, criticism, dissent, um, mm. contrary thoughts. And and I enjoyed the interaction. In fact, I used to spend every Sunday, I'd eat lunch while engaging the intelligence, uh, the senior intelligence leaders and analysts uh, in the multinational force Iraq headquarters. And I loved that session. And it would go off and mm-hmm. on much longer than it was intended because of the exchange was so rich. And keep in mind, by that point, I had two and a half, three years. I eventually did a four years in Iraq. I had a lot of experience, and so they actually enjoyed hearing my perspective, given that I knew all the people they were uh, briefing me about uh, personally. So, again, this is I think it's very, very important that that culture exists and that there never is the kind of uh, indication from the top that this is what I want to hear. If you can find anything that indicates weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, let me know. Um, and that kind of, uh, in a predisposition to believe uh, that those existed, noting to be fair, the community assessment had been for years prior to nine 11. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- there was a conviction that these weapons existed. I was the executive officer of the chef de cabinet for the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff for two years in the late 1990s. And we did, we actually went after the supposed, uh, weapons of mass destruction, production capabilities and delivery means to to degrade them uh, with various strikes at times. And again, there was never really a question that they had these. It was an article of faith by the time the decision was made to invade Iraq. But it was buttressed a bit by some intelligence that on reflection with the very serious reexamination did not did not hold up that well. The um, I mean, that's a good example of where you, you don't need an authoritarian regime to take a piece of intelligence and twist it into something that it wants to hear, that the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, do you 
think if they hadn't had that piece of intelligence, would it have ha- would the you know would the invasion have gone ahead anyway? Was it just the icing on the cake, or was it actually? I think it was a pretty important component of that. Again, the the worry, which was legitimate, and keep in mind, we'd been doing Operation Northern Watch and Southern Watch for a decade or more at that point in time, protecting the Kurds in the north and the Shia in the south to a degree from uh, Saddam's uh, air force and and other capabilities. Um, There there was an acceptance, really, that they had these weapons of mass destruction, again, during the Clinton administration. This wasn't a fabrication of a new administration. But there was a predisposition in certain individuals in the Pentagon, uh, especially, uh, to to prove this sufficiently, um, because, again, the real reason, the real worry is that you have a madman in charge who has started two wars in the past, uh, one with his neighbor Iran, one with Kuwait, um, was a revolutionary power, if you will, revisionist power, not satisfied with the status quo, and has weapons of mass destruction and the means to deliverment them that is a threat to the world. Um, so again, you put it all together, and I think that was, and it was given, needless to say, very heightened importance because of the 9-11 attacks and the sense after those attacks that something worse was coming. So you have to remember the context at that time. It's very easy to look back uh, and ask what folks were thinking. Um, what they were thinking was that the 9-11 attacks were just the opening salvos of what was going to be even worse but the the lingering effects of that have been quite damaging possibly i mean you say in the book um that everyone was surprised by putin's invasion of ukraine except um the cia and mi6 and part of that you said and that's despite the fact that as you said they were quite open with their information uh and yet still people were kind of taken aback in the kind of general populace outside those countries it's, do you think that's because there's a hangover because we we lost a certain level of trust in the um, security services over the whole um, weapons of mass destruction issue? I mean, it's certainly possible because every time that something is presented, one can always say, well, but how did you guys do on, you know, weapons of mass destruction after all? Or again, there's been some other uh, intelligence surprises over the years um, and those will continue to happen. I think in this case, it was a bit more really a degree of, again, resistance to the possibility because of what that could do in a country. Remember, this is not unsimilar, dissimilar to what happened with Ashraf Ghani, who pleaded with Americans to not withdraw uh, our diplomats because it would scare his population. Um, now, it turned out he had much bigger problems than that, needless to say. Um, and his own leadership was a major factor uh, in those problems. But again, this the predisposition, the concerns, the um, unwillingness to take very, very tough actions. Again, if you really mobilize a country like Ukraine and, and prepare the defenses, you cut roads, you blow up bridges, mm-hmm. you drop overhangs. Um, overpasses, you take a number of actions that actually weren't taken um, because of a reluctance, again, to to carry out this mobilization, it totally disrupts your economy. Uh, it scares, again, the daylights out of everyone. You'll see a mass exodus. 
of of people. All of these effects uh, are obviously hugely unwelcome, and so there's a, there's just a delay. Do we really, you know? And there's a okay, and you know, eventually, okay, let's see how it looks tomorrow. Um, and yet, yet those delays have consequences um, if there should have been action taken sooner. And one can certainly argue that that should have been taken sooner for all of the heroics uh, of the Ukrainian, especially these irregular forces that literally were the ones that prevented um, Putin from entering Kiev from the north, especially. And of course, they did then blow a major bridge. But actually, the Russians, by and large, were defeated even north of that that particular bridge. I've walked that territory, that terrain, uh, about eight or nine months ago and went up to Bucha and so forth. So, again, there's a variety of factors at play here. The key, I think, for leaders is to be aware of these dynamics. Again, to be aware that experiences you've had, especially the most visceral of them, and doesn't get any more visceral than war, that those experiences um, very much can influence your judgment, um, your predispositions. Um, and again, the lessons, say, of Vietnam for the senior military were quite profound. Um, and it made us senior military very, very cautious and risk averse for a very long period of time. In fact, I remember President George H.W. Bush saying that the lessons of Vietnam, the ghosts of Vietnam were buried in the sands of Kuwait or something like that. Well, they weren't actually, and they were revived a bit by the experience of um, Somalia and the Mogadishu Mile, as it's termed, that the Battle of Mogadishu. Um, and so you have this, you should have an awareness, again, what are the the lessons, the experiences, the historical analogies on which you are relying and which are influencing your thinking so that you are sensitive to that, uh, just as you have to be sensitive to dynamics of groupthink and all these other challenges uh, that can present themselves to a group, um, especially during crisis decision-making. That's the most significant time. You have to make a decision, Mr. President, we need you. And, you know, what is in his mind, in many cases, it's the most visceral experience uh, he's had recently, uh, and that can be unduly influential, um, whether it is relevant fully or not. Um, in terms of uh, kind of historical um, things repeating us, themselves, one of the things I think people find really extraordinary about the current conflict in Russia and Ukraine is that we're seeing kind of trenches again. Um, it, 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 it looks like an incredibly regressive war and yet as you say in your book like military intelligence has completely transformed the battlefield it's pretty much because of drones and, and and satellites battlefields are pretty much transparent now so i just find it really fascinating that that we have transparent battlefields that look like world war one battlefields can you well the, the great washington post columnist uh, and thinker max boot um has described the war in ukraine as the one in which all quiet on the Western front meets Blade Runner. Right. Um, I think it's a wonderful description because you do have these elements of the Russian defenses in particular, uh, trenches, barbed wire, concertina wire, um, tank ditches, uh, very deep 
and densely packed minefields, all of this that are quite reminiscent of various aspects of World War I over the time. And yet on top of them, you have, in some cases, pretty advanced drones with digital links, um, and yet also huge amounts of artillery harkening back to, say, World War II even. And then the hardware is largely um, what it was when I was a major as a battalion and brigade operations officer uh, up near the inter-German border. Uh, it's, you know, T-72s, 64s, T-80s, and there's some more recent ones. But by and large, it's the same hardware on their side. And now what we're providing to Ukraine is very similar uh, to what we were operating then as well, uh, German Leopard tanks and the American M1 Abrams tank, along with a number of others. But they also have quite sophisticated uh, unmanned aerial and maritime systems. The maritime systems have been particularly revolutionary because they have forced the Russian Black Sea Fleet to do something it hadn't done for centuries, which is to evacuate its ships from the Crimean port of Sevastopol, um, and also to clear out much farther uh, in the Western Black Sea, which is critical because it has allowed the Ukrainians to export grain and so forth, uh, which is essential for food security for Egypt and other African countries in particular, given that Ukraine is 25% of the world's grain exports. Um, so you, you can see how this is all being employed, how it's playing out. And one of the dynamics on which the future in Ukraine depends, in addition to whether the U.S. provides additional assistance and the relative abilities of Ukraine and Russia to recruit, train, equip, uh, and deploy additional replacement soldiers and and personnel and to develop new capabilities and units – um, in addition to that, there's a bit of a race going on in the, in the world of technology. Um, the Russians were not a particularly impressive learning organization in the first probably year and a half, um, of, of the war or so. Uh, but they have, they have improved quite dramatically in that regard. And they are now, at, they're in a race with each other to see who can produce the most effective, um, missiles, drones, surface of the sea as well as in the air. Um, and other capabilities and defensive systems as well, integrated air and ballistic missile systems also, many of which provided by the U.S. and other NATO allies. The technology race, just um, briefly, in your book you discuss uh, intelligence being transformed again with um, AI analysis, data analytic tools, um, and some of this stuff feels kind of, like we're really uh, on the verge of uh, something quite extraordinary and a little terrifying. <laughs> you quote Lawrence Friedman in the book saying that the problem with AI as an intelligence um, analyst is that it lacks human curiosity. Um, so do you think there will always be a place for humans in um, intelligence? There will, um, even if it is to design the, the software that, guides machines in the performance of intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance tasks, and then perhaps um, the analysis and evaluation and integration of what is gathered. But even that will be enabled by AI over time. Um, So AI will help actually develop the programs. Um, But at the end of the day, there will have to be humans that will determine 
the specific conditions that a machine has to meet to take a particular action, whether it is kinetic or non-kinetic, whatever it is. But even the machine is going to be enabled to a considerable degree by AI because the machine will continue to learn and update its software uh, based on a variety of different inputs that it receives and by its own experience, which will also be shared with other machines. So again, the the dynamism here and the, again, as you note, the scary aspects of this are pretty considerable. And there's certainly a bit of an arms race going on um, for who can employ AI most effectively, who can pursue advances in AI, again, most efficiently and, and expeditiously, um, who can get to quantum first, uh, all of these different in- efforts that are ongoing are really quite substantial. And and mm-hmm. some of them could truly be uh, relatively game-changing, especially quantum, if that can actually be achieved in the way that theoretically is possible, but practically is still a bit elusive, noting that, yes, we're getting, quote, near quantum, uh, which is basically just machines, computers that are vastly more powerful uh, and more capable, but we're not yet at that incredible breakthrough uh, of true quantum, the computing power of which would be astronomically greater uh, than what we can achieve right now. Yeah, uh, kind of terrifying, I'm afraid. <laughs> the future with quantum computers, everything's visible, everything's analysed to an enormous degree. Oh, are there still going to be soldiers against soldiers fighting in alleyways? Or does um, this supersede even that? It depends on the context. Um, machines can do a great deal. Um, we're seeing some inclin- inclination in that regard or some, we're seeing some hints in that regard by how the Israelis are using certain, uh, unmanned systems. But again, at the end of the day, to a degree, for the foreseeable future, um, a human is still going to have to be the final validator that the room is clear, the floor is clear, the, uh, structure is clear, the basement's clear, the tunnel is clear. Um, but again, increasingly, uh, all kinds of unmanned systems are going to be employed. And also increasingly, those unmanned systems will be machine driven rather than remotely piloted. And that's what's particularly interested. And they can be swarms of them. Again, it all depends on the context. But if you're thinking of the most high end war, um, then for the first time, you're starting to see the adage that we used to repeat during Cold War days, which we could ever, never actually operationalize, but it sounded great. And we all re- recited it. What can be seen can be hit. What can be hit can be killed. The truth is, actually, during the Cold War, even in the later days of it, we couldn't see all that well. We couldn't see through the depth of the battlefield the way that our doctrine said that we should and and were aspiring to do. Um, and when it came to hitting something, especially if it was moving, that was pretty difficult, even if you could, if you could see it. Um, but in the current context, especially if you're talking about, say, a vast, um, say, the Indo-Pacific region uh, at sea in the air and so forth, you can see just about everything above the surface. Below the surface, still quite challenging, but you can see everything. Therefore, 
you can hit everything and you're going to do it with systems that are increasingly unmanned, can maneuver at the final moment, may come at you in swarms and may do so at hypersonic speeds. Um, and therefore, if all of that comes to pass, then you can probably kill everything. And this is what is is compelling, really, the transformation of our forces from what might in a very simplistic manner be described as a small number of large, exceedingly capable, heavily manned, exorbitantly expensive platforms, not just on the surface of the sea, but in the, in the air uh, and also on the ground, <clears throat> to a vastly greater number, incomparably greater, massive number of unmanned systems, uh, smaller, less expensive, uh, and over time, not remotely piloted, but again, algorithmically piloted, where the human in the loop becomes the human on the loop, the human who actually, again, designs the software program in accordance with conditions that have been established for the machine to meet and then take an action. Um, mm. So again, this is quite a transformation. It's ongoing in the early incipient stages. Uh, I would suspect that it will accelerate uh, over time uh, and that it will be dramatically um, enabled by artificial intelligence, again, greater computing power, processing power, analytics, and so on. But we're already seeing the beginnings of it because you talk uh, in your book about yes. um, going to Ukraine and meeting the kind of software engineers, the, the the kind of kids, the Ukrainian kids fighting the war, the kind of, you know, the geeks. Again, it reminds you of the extraordinary IT skills. Also, by the way, the extraordinary manufacturing skills uh, of the Ukrainians. Mm. Uh, and, but you also talk about the fact that um, there's a kind of democratization of the intelligence as a result, because there's a you know much more civilian involvement, much more open source intelligence. There's much more, you know, intelligence is no longer just the preserve of um, you know these kind of mighty executive exactly. organizations anymore. Exactly. Yeah, and so you have, in fact, you have open source intelligence, really open source information aggregators who comb the internet and social media sites and and internet service platforms, everything out there, and then try to mine it for relevant information to integrate it. Uh, and again, the real art is, of course, the integration. And still, this is something that the intelligence agencies, the best intelligence agencies are really still pretty unequaled uh, because yeah. they can take all the open source information and it's publicly known there is an open source center run by the cia for the director of national intelligence in the united states and then also combine that with in, integrate that with the classified intelligence that's gathered uh, by the organization as well and then with all the other types of intelligence whether again it's geospatial or imagery or signals or cyber or um metadata of various types, human intelligence, uh, and so forth. All of these brought together uh, and integrated in very impressive ways um, that revolutionize, again, the intelligence world and do it at much greater speed. Mm. So that whether it is trying to understand what the enemy is doing in real time or where specific individuals, specific bad guys might be in real time, uh, all of this has evolved very, very significantly 
over the course of the last two decades in particular. Well, I'm glad you you say that there's still a place for the CIA, because I think most of my listeners will be absolutely obsessed with the CIA. And I know that they would be interested, as I am, to know that um, when you joined CIA from the army, was there anything that surprised you about it when you got on the inside? Was it what yeah, you expected? Yeah, I mean, on a daily basis, actually. But look, I, you know, if you're serving in the war zones the way I did, uh, again, I had six commands as a general officer consecutive. That was the my final assignments in uniform. Um, five of those were combat commands. And actually that's not counting Bosnia where I was a one star and a deputy commander of a clandestine joint task force doing the war criminal hunt. And then ultimately counterterrorism dual hatted as a NATO one star operations chief. Um, when you, if you've done all of that, you have had so much contact with the CIA not just in my case, operations officers, but also with the analysts, because I broke with the intelligence community on several uh, of their products. These are big, big, very, very big deal, if you will. Just tell the president when he asks you, what do you think of the new national intelligence estimate on the situation in Iraq? I said, with great respect to them, Mr. President, I'll explain why this happened, but I disagree. Uh, fundamentally, this is not a, and I didn't put a footnote or a appendix or an annex, which is what you can do if you disagree. I just said I fundamentally disagree with the assessment. But now the reason is because they locked their books down six or eight weeks earlier, which is what they have to do. In those days, it was still hard copy and you have to get the, the diagrams and run it through all these different uh, clearance processes, get everybody to chop off. And normally that's fine. But in a very, very dynamic situation, which is what the surge in Iraq was, uh, between the fourth and the sixth month, we had enormous progress. And all of a sudden, what was just a glimmer when they locked their books down and they agree, okay, this is it. Because you do have to do that. Again, where you're a large organization, you have to say, okay, the data is cut off here. And so by the time they actually print it, bind it, deliver it, which is what you did in that day, the situation is so transformed. And the president asked me on the specific day that I'm going to testify or whatever, a couple of days prior, what's your view? And I said, it's fundamentally different. So that led to enormous um, interaction with the analysts, the analytical side of these agencies, having already had enormous contact with all these different chiefs of station and operations officers and others. Um, and I love that. Again, you know, I'm, and they actually, I think they liked it. You know, what they have is a soldier with a PhD who has enormous on the ground experience in evaluating their work. In some cases, they did all back in the United States based on stuff coming from the theater. So then they would share what they were going to brief the president in advance. I couldn't change it, but I could object to it. Um, and they'd normally, you know, they take that really seriously. I've been longer in theater than any of them by far. And knew the, I even knew their sources because it was, it was pretty clear when you'd get a source report, it's hard to hide from the guy that's working with him on, has been doing it for years on a daily basis. So all of that notwithstanding, still when you arrive there, number one, the just the sheer quality of the people, the commitment, um, in a workforce that can't go home and talk about what they do with their neighbors, much even their families. Um, it, requires extraordinary dedication and the sheer quality was it was the highest quality workforce i'd ever been been with and then 
almost on certainly on a multiple times a week, there would be something that come in and say, you know, we need to update you or brief you on this particular source or this particular technical capability and or this particular initiative. And some of these were, you've got to be kidding me. Seriously? So there really are still some extraordinary uh, capabilities that are secret and and so forth. Um, and, you know, weren't in the Snowden leaks or WikiLeaks or what have you. Um, and that was just such an incredible privilege um, mm-hmm. that, again, I think it's the greatest job, I think, in in the government in the world, but certainly in the U.S. government, uh, because of the mission, because of the people, and because of a considerable degree of autonomy, especially when it comes to covert action, for which you'd report directly to the president, not through the director of national intelligence. And that's a large part of what it is you're doing around the world, needless to say. So, again, really an extraordinary organization and and the greatest of privileges to serve with them after the greatest of privileges, which is to uh, lead America's sons and daughters in in multiple wars. Well, David, it's an amazing privilege to interview you. Uh, So for me, that's 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 an extraordinary privilege. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please do give us a follow. Tell your friends. Get the word out. Next time, something completely different. Elizabethan spy, philosopher and heretic, Giordano Bruno, with best-selling novelist, S.J. Paris. <laughs>